I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I am your hot and sweaty co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm hot and sweaty again because I was outside <laughs> at Pride afternoon. It was really fun, but it's it's too hot out there, I gotta tell you. It's a hot one and it's only going to get hotter. Uh, but we're not talking about climate change for a change <laughs> here on this podcast. Uh, instead, we're talking about something more exciting, which is the recent uh, electoral victory of uh, Petro, Gustavo Petro, the presidential candidate in Colombia, the very first left wing president in the history of that country. We've brought back a, a past guest that we've had on the show, Hector Serra Ferrer who is a colleague of mine at the Institute for Christian Studies. I've known him for a long time. He's a fantastic scholar of liberation theology, always thinking about Colombia and uh, these different kind of theological ways of bringing in concepts like hope and memory to to uh, really analyze actual concrete situations. So excited to have Hector to guide us through what this recent victory in Colombia means and what it might also mean kind of theologically and, and for how we think about the region. Yeah, for sure. Hector is extremely uh, thoughtful, I think, about the way he answered all of our questions and mm -hmm. explained it all. So it was great to hear from him. Um, I'm excited for everyone else out there to listen to it. Me too. If you can't get enough of this content, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And folks who support us at $2 or more also get access to a really neat Discord community that's there. We've been talking about all kinds of things, uh, current events, books, articles, and so on. Uh, lots of great memes shared in there. If you're into that sort of thing, extremely niche <laughs> Christian left-wing discourse that's happening. Uh, we occasionally do another podcast around current events that we post there when we can get around to it. We should probably get back around to it <laughs> this summer, uh, but it's called The Lock-In, and uh, you can find all that and more at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. All right, great. Let's go to Hector. Thanks for joining us on the show, Hector. Uh, for a long time, Magnificast listeners, Hector has been on the show a handful of times in the past to talk about liberation theology and Colombia, but this time he's back to talk about the recent electoral victory of Gustavo Petro, the new president of Colombia. All very exciting stuff, but before we get that far, Hector, could you introduce yourself for folks who may not have heard you on this podcast before? Oh, thank you, uh, Dean and Matt, for inviting me. Um, I'm... Hector, so Hector Alfonso Acero Ferrer, that's my full name. Now that I'm speaking about Colombia, I feel I should <laughs> say my full name as it's supposed to be pronounced. 
Um, I uh, currently um, live in Toronto. I'm uh, an uh, adjunct uh, faculty member at Martin Luther University College in Waterloo. And I also work at the Institute for Christian Studies, and I'm also a PhD student there. Uh, my, my research, as Dean mentioned it before, is on liberation theology, particularly looking at um, ecclesial-based communities, which are kind of the nodal places where liberation theology emerges, um, and seeing how those um, allow or inspire um, some sort of civic engagement. So that's that's a little bit about me. Cool. Thanks, Doctor. Um, well, all right. We're talking about Colombia. We're talking about Gustavo Petro. Um, as a person who is from Colombia, how would you tell the story of Colombian politics? I mean, that's like a a huge, like a, a like a stupidly huge question. <laughs> uh, it's a bit. It's a big country. A lot of things have happened. Um, it's cool. Uh, but I don't know, how would you tell us the story as a person with that background? Um, what are the big movements within it that might help people in North America kind of contextualize um, the situation in Colombia, but also what the what like what Petro's victory means? Yeah, there are there are a few ways of um, getting at this question, but I decided to kind of narrow it down as a, like an abbreviated history of um, Colombian leftist politics. Um, but before I, I go into that, I just want to say that Colombia, and as many of you may have seen in the news, um, Colombia has never really elected um, a left-leaning politician as a president. Um, there have been local uh, elections in which uh, left-leaning politicians have won, um, up to the kind of mayor of Bogota, which is the capital and biggest city in Colombia, but never, um, never a, a nationwide uh, movement that has done what Petro has done this time. So um, this is huge, but it also says something about Colombian politics, the fact that Colombia has been the only country in Latin America that has never seen um, the left as a, as a real possibility to govern, like to, to be governed under. Um, and I, that says something about uh, who Colombians are, but it also says something about Colombians' role in the geopolitics of the region and how that relates to the United States. And I'll say that, something about that later. But for now, I just wanted to give you a little run through the, the history of the Colombian left, because that's, that's really important to understand uh, Petro's victory and Petro's own history as a person and as a, as a member of a, a larger movement. So um, the first moment that we see um, uh, a left coalescing in Colombia uh, as a movement is really between the 30s and 40s, um, with kind of an, uh, a movement that is now called liberalism, but it is not liberalism in the way that we understand it now in Colombia. It's just a, a more radical expression of politics um, that is trying to break with a lot of the traditional ways of doing politics in Colombia. So that's happened, that happens in the 30s and 40s, and it ends with the, the, what we call the magnicide, the, the murder of a presidential candidate, Jorge Eliezer Gaitan, in uh, April 9th of 1948. Um, that moment is a crucial turning point in Colombian history because it brings the um, the political violence that we know now in Colombia starts in that moment with the with the murder of 
a Gaitan in downtown Bogota um, that um, gives the fuel to a lot of uh, leftist guerrillas uh, in the country to be formed, both urban and rural, uh, but it also fuels the, um, the right-wing conservative movements to also uh, coalesce with armed, um, with armed agents and eventually develop the, the kind of conflict that we know now and that um, is somehow addressed with the peace process that we are going to talk about in a moment. Um, that goes on to um, 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 20 years of um, the emergence and development of the leftist guerrillas. Um, they have, there are different movements and we have known them through different names, the FARC, the ELN, the EPL, and smaller guerrilla movements that we really uh, don't know as, um, a, we don't know them as a national uh, force, but they are just local movements that kind of fight in their, in their local regions uh, independently from the, the, larger, uh, the larger groups that um, people usually know about. Uh, sorry, that's, that's a very long history, but it, 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 it really is relevant to understand what is happening now um, because it is out of those guerrilla movements that um, there is a great desire for peace in the country, a peace that includes um, all the left-leaning uh, political movements, both armed and not armed right now. So we're back in the 60s and 70s, that gets fueled intellectually with the um, during the 70s and 80s with movements of students that start enrolling in the guerrillas. So the guerrillas started being really a rural movement and eventually become um, a more urban movement. And that is that coalesces around uh, a particular group called the M19, um, the movement of April 19th. So another big April date for us. So we have the, the first April date, which is April 9th, which is the, the murder of Jorge Eliezer Gaitan in, in 1948. And there is um, April 19th of 1970, which is a, a presidential election that um, everybody um, knows was won by uh, Gustavo Rojas Pinilla, who was a kind of former uh, military uh, leader and dictator uh, in question mark because we really is not dictator in the way that other dictators um, were dictators in Latin America. Uh, but he wins those ele uh, that election in 1970 um, and uh, Colombians go to bed that night assuming he won and he's going to rule the country for four years and they wake up with, uh, with him being ousted and a conservative president uh, in in power. So that gives fuel to M19 to emerge, and M19 is the movement uh, that will eventually be um, Gustavo Petro's home movement. So he becomes a member of that guerrilla movement, and um, in, during the 80s, they have a, a, like a central role in Colombian uh, politics uh, because they achieve a, a, an amnesty and a peace agreement with the government. Um, in the late 80s, and their membership goes from being militants out in the cities to be um, politicians. So many of them become um, members of the House of Representatives, many of them become senators, 
And it is through that transition that Petro himself becomes a um, member of the House. So that's the first, um, the first moment in uh, Petro's own history that he becomes uh, a member of a, the national political stage. Before that, he was a local leader. He had been a mayor of a, a small town north of Bogota, but uh, through the um, the amnesty of the M19, he becomes a um, member of the House of Representatives, and he begins his um, his career as a member of really some sort of opposition to every government that happens between that moment in, in the 80s and now. Um, Sorry, I need to take a little break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> no, that's great, though. Yeah, it's it's helpful to get uh, all that context um, on the table. And obviously, it's a really complicated history in a complicated country. Maybe we can uh, jump forward a little bit by just talking about, you know, who's Petro now? And, and what do you think appealed to the people of Colombia in a unique way? As you said, he's the first leftist president um, I remember even talking to you a little bit, you know, as the elections were going on. And uh, at that time, I know when they got to the the runoff, you were uh, unsure, <laughs> to put it lightly, I guess, about his prospects. So what do you think maybe um, uh, tipped him over the edge or, or finally, you know, got him to secure that historic victory? I think that is um, it's a transition that he had as a person, but also the left had had as a movement in Colombia. Um, a transition between being um, an opposition that never saw itself governing to an opposition that will eventually um, govern. So uh, an opposition that had hope of eventually running the country. Um, and I and what do I make that difference? Because um, for the longest time, both um, as military groups and as political parties, um, the left saw itself just as um, a way of keeping some taps on the government and keeping the government accountable in the margins. Um, but eventually, with the action of Petro, they became a movement that had the hope of uh, really transforming politics in the country. And and that goes through like three different kind of in three different moments. So um, the amnesty with the M19 ended up. Um, developing a group called Union Patriotica, the Patriotic Union, which is uh, a, a movement that had many of the ex-members of M19 being um, its leaders. And they were intellectual, but they had also been um, guerrilla members, and they were, had been militant in many different ways. And they were gaining a, lo a lot of traction in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. But uh, in, during the same period, the violence in Colombia increased and many of them were murdered. Um, there is a, a really nice quote from Petro um, from his uh, running in the election, not this one, but the last one, so four years ago, when he said that those who were voting for him were voting for the worst of the possibilities they would have had back in the 80s. Mm. So he is the only person really left from that movement. There were hundreds of them that were killed, local leaders and national leaders that were killed because they had a chance of running the country. 
and a transition needed to happen over the last 35 years, as long as I've been alive, for that movement to eventually become the movement that uh, Petro is the um, really the face of that movement now. And it, the transition was a transition that involved um, something that we call citizenship pedagogy, which was led by uh, a figure called Antanas Mokus, who is a supporter of, of Petro now. Uh, we had to go through a process of um, kind of a new left. So when the left really started winning in local elections, um, through um, the um, being, being the government in small provinces, in the bigger cities of Colombia, like Bogota, like Cali, um, also in the north, then um, those members of those parties that eventually coalesce in the left that we know now started seeing what it would like to really govern a place like Colombia or to govern in a place like Colombia. Uh, the compromise that came with it, the, um, the difficulty of dealing with international pressures. Um, there, is, uh, there is a lot of ambigu ambiguity coming from the international community as to what Colombian politics and Colombian democracy should look like. So all of this long story to say, Petro really has gone through all that journey himself. So he has been a guerrilla member, and that has been in all the, uh, the like really the headlines of all the newspapers around the world. Guerrilla member, former guerrilla member, becomes uh, a Colombian president. But between being a guerrilla member and being a president, he's also been a member of the House of Representatives, um, a Senate member, a mayor of Bogota, and he's been many other things along the way that have taught him what really means on the ground to rule and to, to govern, to be a leader of Colombia, and also to be a leader of a country in which the left has also harmed a lot of people. And I, I wouldn't really be um, responsible or honest if I were to speak now without recognizing that aspect of it. Um, and it is the fact that Petro himself has recognized that, that earned him the extra votes that he needed to win the election. That's really interesting. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I guess, you know, a headline that says uh, former mayor wins presidency is not as exciting as former guerrilla member, <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> it's, it's helpful contextualization to make sense of, of the sensationalization of, uh, of Petro as a figure. That's interesting. I want to ask a big question about the peace process, because that's a huge, that's a huge part of it. But maybe before we get that far, you, you just mentioned that Petro himself is kind of um, you know, spoken about the, um, the the violence that the left has caused. I don't know. How does that work out for him? Do you, can you say a little bit more about that? If not, it's okay. But uh, I'm interested to, to hear how, um, I don't know, what, what does that sound like or, or how does that work out for him? Being connected to, um, to not just the left, but the left that was out, like how we call it in Colombia, on the hills like being a fighter is one of the greatest liabilities of Petro himself, because um, especially during the last few years, um, Colombia has seen a type of violence from the left that is um, that wasn't present before. Um, a violence that is um, a, that is happening in um, 
in the cities uh, that is connected to drug trafficking, that is connected to um, kind of terror attacks. I don't, I don't like that term because it, it brings together a lot of things that don't belong in it, but that's how the way it's presented. So that's how people perceive it. Um, so that is a liability for him. So he has had to speak several times about it and what he feels about that. And um, perhaps there are two ways in which he's, he's addressed that. The first one is by being uh, really a, a supporter of the peace process itself, um, saying that we need to, um, in order to guarantee that the, the crimes are not going to be treated with impunity, we need to really adhere ourselves what to the peace process and what the peace process calls us to do in terms of that special justice um, system that was created to, to address what happens after the war in that case. And the second uh, line of action for him has been to um, have conversations with victims and have conversations with victims of both sides. Um, go to communities where the guerrilla uh, groups have come in and committed ma massacres. Um, go to those small towns in which indigenous groups are both afraid of the left and the right and dialogue with them. So it is that kind of community-based work that he's done that has really earned him the support of those peripheral communities that were affected by really both left and right, but in that, in, in his case, the left, which would have been the, the thing that would have um, caused them to be hesitant to vote for him. So you'll see the change, the shift between the elections four years ago and the elections now, where four years ago, he had parts of the periphery of Colombia uh, on his side. And this uh, time around, he has a solid, like all the way around Colombia, all those departments, uh, the provinces, the states that are in the periphery of Colombia are all solidly Petro. Petro won by like a landslide in mo most of them, like 70, 60% of the vote was for him in those areas because he just went and did the work and decided that um, he really needed to dialogue with the communities and show them that the left could have a different kind of presence for him, for them. That's so fascinating. What a what a neat thing. Um, I mean, it's such a hard situation, I guess, but uh, to see that's how he kind of overcame it is pretty fascinating. Well, um, maybe we can get a little bit more into the peace process then, because that is a big part of the story as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the major things that was at stake in the election itself was the peace process in Colombia. So can you explain uh, what that process is and, and how it stalled under Duque? Yeah, uh, the peace process is one of kind of the greatest moments in Colombian history, um, in recent Colombian history. Why? Because it came out of nowhere. Um, the president of the time, which was um, a Juan Manuel Santos, uh, had been the defense minister of Alvaro Uribe. And Alvaro Uribe was the, the, um, the president that wanted to win the war. His, his, um, his whole platform was, we need to win the war to make this a democratic and peaceful country. That was exactly what he said. And Santos was right next to him through that, through that process. Then Santos 
slowly distanced himself from Uribe and becomes the president with the support of Uribe and Uribe's people. But in his own presidency, Santos distanced himself so much from Uribe that he ends up uh, leading this peace process. Um, and the peace process happens in, in Cuba, which is another major like bone of contention for Colombians because Cuba is connected to radical communism, which is one of the sources of pain for many Colombians. Um, and uh, Santos goes, goes through with the process. And the, the process ends up in a, an agreement that is um, a solid, very well-crafted agreement with um, input from many um, different uh, groups in Colombian politics, but also um, social movements, uh, grassroots movements. They all had to do with the peace process. Eventually, to legitimize the process, Santos decides that he needs to do um, a referendum. Uh, and the referendum was basically, do you support this peace process? And the majority of Colombians said no. Granted, the majority of Colombians in any of the elections that we've talked about, including the election in which Petro won, is not a significant majority. It's just between the 51 and 55% of the country. At that moment, it was just over half of the country who voted against the peace process. And that evolved in um, a series of political events that um, made that over half of the country very angry at the peace process. And they ended up electing the president that decided that the peace process uh, needed to be uh, boycotted, in a sense. And that's Duque, our current president. So he goes into power, and as he starts ruling himself, the country, he decides that he can't fully boycott the, um, the peace process, but he is going to stall the process. So um, he doesn't follow through with many of the areas of the, um, of the agreements. Um, the uh, special uh, justice system is underway, and he can't really stop that. But even though he doesn't stop that, he stalls so many other aspects of the process so much that social leaders, um, those who supported the process at the grassroots level, start being murdered across Colombia in the hundreds. So that's happened over the past four years. And it is in response to that that uh, Petro comes in also in what I was talking about before, in that community-based approach, he goes out to the communities and start talk, starts talking to those leader, leaders who are still alive, who are still working for the uh, for a weird combination between social justice, uh, environmental justice, and the peace agreement. And one of those leaders is Francis Marquez, who is his vice presidential um, parent. And um, and that's that's how he kind of builds uh, his own understanding, his own response to Duque, um, and that's how he starts supporting the process. We all knew that he was in favor of the, of the process. He, we all knew that that was important part of his platform. But um, the significant part of what he does in support of the process is going to the small communities and assuring them that 
the process was going to be supported not only politically from the downtown, the center of Colombia, but it was going to be supported from those small communities, guaranteeing that social leaders were not going to be killed anymore. And that goes full circle into what we talked about before, that, that way of him to work both with the uh, the factions of the the left that are downtown, that are that are urban, uh, but also with those communities in the outskirts that are hesitant as to which way to go, uh, because they are the first victims of the violence that the peace process promised was going to address. Yeah, we, uh, you mentioned also um, Francia Marquez. So the uh, the peace process is certainly, I think, an important symbolic moment, right, for Petro as somebody who was a guerrilla and and as you're kind of talking about, has these um, these connections and this really uh, interesting commitment to talking that through with affected communities. So Marquez also seems like such an important uh, symbolic shift as well, right? She's the the first Afro-Colombian uh, woman to hold that position. She comes from, a, I think, like a working class background rather than a, an elite background. Um, she's involved in these kind of environmental issues and anti-mining stuff. Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit more about her as well? And how does she factor into uh, Petra's win, uh, her own kind of win, uh, the future for Colombia? I don't know. What do you think about when you think of her in, in this position? Thinking about her makes me want to cry a bit because she is she is the kind of Colombian woman I I grew up with. Not, not because of her uh, ethnicity, not because she's Afro-Colombian, but because she is through and through a local leader. She is someone who um, is what is left after violence. Many communities in Colombia don't have anything left but the women the lideresas, the, the female leaders um, that decided that they were going to provide some sort of resistance against the paramilitary on the right, against the FARC on the left, against the military in the middle, like in the center of all of that, all those three agents, the women were in the middle of all that process. They were trying to hold on to their children so that the children weren't uh, recruited by any of these groups, um, and they were trying to imagine a different type of community, um, and that gets expressed in many different ways. There is, it really is contextual. So in some places, it's an, a, a huge emphasis on environmental justice uh, without having the literacy to speak about it, but just intuitively. Uh, in some other places, it has to do with just a... Um, support of memory, trauma, and peace, like that, 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 that mix of those three things, just uh, trying to help people work through the trauma of war and imagine a peaceful environment for, for their children in those local communities. And in some other places, it has some um, kind of social justice component to it, either um, equality as conceived in, in those remote regions, which will have to do with race, or um, it will have to do with um, some sort of inclusion of indigenous voices, which happens in the South, or it will have to do with the inclusion of like mothers head of home, which it happens traditionally in the cities. Francia is a mix of many of those, 
um, more heavily leaning on the environmental justice side of things, but also motherhead of home, but also someone who has defended her own context against the different armed agents, but also a survivor of it all. Many of the leader, the lideresses, the leader, the female leaders around her have been murdered. So her story, even though it's very different from Petros, is also structurally the same. She is the one leader that is still standing in her region. She's the one person that survived it all. And maybe it was just circumstantial, or maybe it was because she was the strongest person. And maybe it's because of the two things coming together. And I think that that, that resonance between the two of them makes Petro and, and, and Francia work really well together. That's so cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe again of how interesting this is. <laughs> I, I was reading, I've been reading a bit about Petro himself, and that's been cool, but I've not read about the vice president, and she sounds <laughs> really rad. Uh, excited to learn more, maybe. Well, you were just mentioning um, memory and trauma and justice a minute ago, and that seems like a good time to pivot towards maybe a different, uh, you know, thinking about this in a different register. I guess, how have you reflected on this electoral victory uh, theologically? I mean, you're um, you're a very smart PhD student. You're working on liberation theology. How does this all sound to you uh, in that in that register? That's, again, another big question, but um, you have, I will have different answers for it depending on um, what kind of movement you wanted to describe, but I'll, I'll try to, to get to it through two different angles. The first one is um, the, the people's theology itself. Um, I often say when I'm asked um, that what really is the, the underlying value of Colombians, I will say that is hope. And I usually, in the context of Colombia, describe hope as a, both a blessing and a burden. And why a burden? Because Colombians somehow um, need to be hopeful in spite of all. We are not allowed to lament. We are not allowed to uh, feel despair. We are not allowed to feel that um, the situation that we are living in is the worst, or is or is traumatic, or is it should make us cry or suffer. We we are always um, somehow programmed to feel that even after everything that happens to a person, hope is the only possible answer. And that comes from many different angles. It comes from the influence of liberation theology and the, the particular kind of liberation theology that, that emerged in Colombia that had to do a lot with um, the moment of the, the gathering of bishops in Colombia, in Medellin in 1968, the, the birth moment of liberation theology. So we're kind of left with that idea that we are the... We are the ushers of that that shift in theology, and as such, we need to remain hopeful that that change needs to um, have results, political results. Um, so that's one 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 um, pathway of of theological reflection by the people in their context, in their communities. 
But the second path is the, the theology of the people that has accompanied the emergence of um, the Pentecostalism meets um, evangelicalism meets um, small kind of um, American churches that have been um, have migrated to Colombia in the last 30 years. And that is a theology of the people as much as liberation theology is a theology of the people and is its own form of um, progress theology or theology of prosperity or theology. There are many words to describe it on the ground. So I am trying to hold on to those and transliterate those for you, even though they don't mean the same thing that they will mean in the context of the United States. But is the idea that uh, hope is connected to um, our capacity to make our own situation change. Therefore, if we work hard enough, if we have the proper work ethic that we need to have in order to be people in the world and interact with one another, then uh, God will compensate us with success, with progress, with development. Um, and that is very tricky there because development is a word that is also very important to the kind of liberation theology that emerges in Colombia. So in many contexts, these two are, are, are very close to one another. Um, the theology of the people that is connected to 1968 and the evolution of liberation theology since, and the theology of the people that emerges in the margins of the cities of Colombia and is influenced by a form of Pentecostalism, evangelicalism that has been in, transplanted from the United States to Colombia. Uh, so how do I see all of these <laughs> political landscape theologically? Um, it's really a victory of, of the kind of hope that um, started in 1968, but is also connected to the way in which um, the Roman Catholic Church is shifting its own presence in Colombia. Um, the Roman Catholic Church in Colombia has been very conservative historically, the same way that politics in Colombia have been very conservative. So unlike everywhere else in Latin America, our church, at least our hierarchy, has remained quite conservative, even in response to uh, a ground level shift to a more um, a liberation theology influence, a, a generation of priests and lay leaders. Um, but the hierarchy of the Catholic, Catholic Church in the last few years have shifted a lot, um, connected to the papacy of Pope Francis who is um, unquestionably a figure um, that has given a lot of credibility to the peace process, to leaders like Petro, um, and also to local leaders that are influenced by the left. So theologically, all of these to me means that the, um, the understanding of hope that um, is espoused or that generates uh, some connection between liberation theology and what happens within mainstream churches is what is kind of winning the day, is what people feel more called to. And they feel validated by kind of the international um, 
presence of someone like Pope Francis uh, also advocating for things like that. Uh, Pope Francis came to Colombia in 2016 to support the peace process. Um, so we can't ignore the political significance of that, but also the theological significance of Pope Francis' own understanding of um, of what is to be a, a faithful person in the world and how that impacts Colombians at the ground. Uh, one thing that I always find so useful when I hear you talk about theology, Hector, uh, is that you have this way of putting together the theological side that's more maybe speculative or kind of imaginative or conceptual, and then the real like on the ground story of people living lives of faith and what's the kind of emergent theology, you know, trying to really, I guess, not see that sociological maybe way of looking at theology and that conceptual way of looking at it uh, as, as distinct. And I wonder, you know, as you were sort of uh, thinking about this election, participating in it, uh, watching it and, and so on, um, you know, what kinds of commentary were you seeing from theological communities surrounding the election? Uh, were there liberation theologians kind of intervening in it? Um, was there a kind of theology maybe bubbling up around it that's that's unique? Were there any theological trends that you you noticed or that expression of hope? Um, maybe what do you uh, what do you make of that sort of theological response uh, in Colombia itself? There are a few things that that. Uh that I think that, that the two of you and those who are listening will find interesting. Uh, the first aspect of it all is that, you know, the left in Colombia has been, for the most part, very um, agnostic or atheist or a combination of the two. I don't know. It, like, it's, it's difficult to, to like, put, put my finger on exactly what they are, but clearly anti-church um, establishment. Therefore, um, leaders like Petro tend to avoid using God language in their in their speeches, or say anything like a blessing, or or use the word of the the the, the, the term blessing in how they refer to um, to winning or being paired to someone who is the right uh, the right formula for them or something like that. But I heard Petro in the last little bit, and this is very recent. Um, last two or three months, um, returning to a more kind of theological language, uh, using the word God, using the word blessing. And um, I don't think I'm the only person noticing that. I, I think that people are picking up on it, both the electorate, but also the, the leaders that are around him. Um, and also the the vice president formula there. So uh, uh, Francie Marquez, she, she does use a lot of that, that theology of the people language. So it is refreshing how she's brought that back into the conversation. So that's one aspect of, of, of that. Second one is um, outside theologians uh, commenting on it a lot. So Leonardo Boff, for example, has been very active and people in his own circles uh, supporting Petro and speaking about Petro's um, integrity and Petro's vision and all of that. And, and that's very, very helpful. Um, it's helpful for people who, who consider themselves faithful because they, um, they are taught not to dissociate their, their religious, their faith life from their political life. So when you hear a leader that doesn't necessarily use that language or that 
might be against your own faith tradition, then that creates a lot of doubt. But now all of that is being reintegrated in a way that is that is really helpful, which in turn has allowed the local leaders who were supporting Petro to have that theological turn too, to use the, the, the language of faith uh, to speak about what is happening. Um, providence is not a word we use a lot in Colombia because um, you know, the opening up of vistas is so important to liberation theology, but also to other kinds of theology in Colombia. But, um, you know, divine fortuity, I don't know, divine randomness. There is a lot of that kind of language out there, like, you know, serendipity, but not just secular serendipity, but serendipity that is influenced by God somehow. There is a lot of that emerging, and that is... I can see that a lot through like really social media, how the, the local leaders are responding to things and including that kind of language in how, how they speak, but also responding to what the, the small, if you want to call it ecclesial-based communities, how they are interpreting the gospel and their call right now. Um, so definitely, I think that theology or theological language is making a comeback to politics, but not just through the conservative right-wing side of things, which was what was there before. Colombia is consecrated to the sacred heart of Jesus, and that is really important to us because that means that moral, in terms of moral theology, we espouse A, B, C, and D. Um, they had it very clear that they were on the side of the right theology and the right religious understanding. But now um, their situation is getting more complicated because there are sections of the church, the Catholic church that are supporting Petro because there are significant um, religious leaders that were leaders during the peace process who are supporting Petro, but also because there is a comeback of that theological language in how they speak. So people don't feel, uh, don't feel separated from it when they are connecting their own faith life to a political life. That's such a cool thing to hear about. Uh, you know, Petro is sort of like a popular theologian for a minute or something, uh, a very different vibe than uh, the way that works out in the United States. Uh, and I mean, probably in Canada too, but I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> well, anyways, it's really cool. Love to hear it. Um, the theology part is really fascinating. Um, okay, but maybe let's get down to, to brass tacks about about this guy. He's the, the first sort of left president of Colombia, and that's really fascinating and cool. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I read a lot about uh, sort of the reforms that he's interested in making, um, especially around sort of like social programs and, um, I don't know, drug cartels and things like that. Lots of lots of things on the table, right? Lots of things to reform. Um, in, in doing that work, though, I guess, what, what do you think will be the biggest uh, challenges that he'll face when it comes to actually enacting some of these policies? I mean, you know, you, you mentioned that there's all these sort of like areas in the periphery of Colombia that voted for him, but I imagine there are still some pretty significant, uh, you know, detractors. Yeah, um, I'll I'll uh, I'll start my answer to that question by pointing to um, an expression that has emerged in the last week, um, and it, this is really significant in all circles. So, social media, media, any conversation you had with people, they'll tell you what about the other half of Colombia. Uh, we've never spoken about Colombia in terms of halves because we've been a lot more divided than in halves. And that's, that's part of why the left never went to power before. But now it seems like Colombia has two halves. 
And one half, I'm going to quote what I just heard in the news this morning, voted not for something else, but against Petro. And that twist is really important in all this analysis. The fact that the, the coalition of forces that supported the, the candidate that lost the second round of elections um, coalesce around their um, anonymity of, of Petro, their, their anxiety about Petro going into power. So reconciling with them has become a, a major theme and to the point that um, Petro is now going to meet with Alvaro Uribe, really the figure, the, the ghost of the Colombian past there. So that, that figure that has been ruling Colombia behind the veil for the last 20 years at least. So he, they are going to meet. And that's something that I never thought was going to be possible. They are going to meet and have a dialogue, which will have its own problems. But, but I don't want to anticipate anything in that direction. I just want to say dealing with the half of Colombians or the half Colombia, as the, the, uh, the media puts it. That's the first challenge. Second challenge, um, and this is something that has many types of problems connected to it, is Venezuela. How Venezuela does and how Maduro does internally is very significant, um, not just for Petro, but for Petro's own capacity of action in Colombia. Just if you start with the, uh, the physical, concrete realities, Colombia has now around 2 million Venezuelan refugees, and refugees come with their own stories. Refugees come with the stories of terror from their land or of origin. So those stories are the stories that are informing Colombians about what happens in Venezuela and why. Those are the stories to which Petro needs to respond. I'm going to leave it there. Now, there is another aspect of the, the complexity of what Petro needs to deal with, and is the, I, I mentioned it, this once already, the ambiguity of the international pressure or presence in Colombia. And I'll give you one example, because I'm in Canada, and that's, that's something um, relevant to me as, a, as an individual, but also relevant to Colombia as a well. whole. Canada has two ways of influencing Colombia. Influence number one, um, wanting Colombia to be a democratic country where people are free to choose whoever they want as president and yada, yada, yada. Influence number two, mining. And mining in Colombia is connected to paramilitary groups. So it is connected to right-wing control of territories. So Canada, eh, de facto is influencing Colombia in two opposite ways. By promoting the right, but in this case, by promoting also the left because they support the election of Petro. And Petro is the person that is going to have to negotiate that. He's going to have to negotiate the fact that if he wants Canadian mining to be controlled, then it means that Colombians are going to lose jobs in those regions 
and he's not going to have any way to replace those jobs with anything right away. So that needs to be a longer term um, addressing of that problem. Um, but at the same time, he needs to deal politically uh, with the country of Canada and what that represents. And that's one of the most benign relationships that Colombia has with, with the international community. The relationship with the United States is a lot more difficult than that because U.S. companies are all over the Colombia. They have been allowed to run just rampant, uh, to destroy the environment. And yet you now have a uh, uh, government in the United States that says that climate change is a reality and that it needs to be somehow controlled. So who do we listen to? And then the, the, uh, the burden of dealing with that is not on the countries that are putting pressure on us, but it's on us our very fragile democracy that almost depends on two people now because Petro and Francia are the ones that are going to have to deal with that against so many internal pressures already. Now, the last uh, big concern uh, or big challenge for Petro is um, local communities. Um, and again, another area in which the right has been very effective in the past. Um, Sorry to keep drilling on this, but Alvaro Uribe had a great capacity to be present everywhere. When he was, a pre uh, he was president, he will fly himself into every little corner of the country. And we have a TV channel that had him going to all these local councils and he was present. And people liked him not because of, not because of what he was doing, but because he was present. Petro had the same challenge of remain, like remaining present for people, of having the amount of presence he's had during the campaign throughout his mandate. And that's very difficult to do in a place like Colombia, because as I already mentioned, he's, had to deal, he's gonna have to deal with many other pressures, both from the political elite in Colombia, but also from the international community. So all of that is, are the challenges that he's facing, uh, my hope, I don't want to, I don't want to leave that answer in, in despair. I want to leave that answer in hope is that Petro is really surrounding himself with very capable people, both at the, the level of um, kind of political hierarchy, but also at the ground level. He is acknowledging those local um, figures that are supporting him throughout the, the campaign. So um, I think that that maintaining those connections is going to be the way for Petro to be able to enact some of that um, transformation um, immediately in the margins and then come back to the center slowly. That is really interesting. And uh, I think a helpful way of maybe looking at uh, some of the limitations of, of Petro's uh, victory or, or the cross pressures that he's going to have to deal with, um, really useful to have that, that context. Maybe as a, a final question, as we sign off at the top of the hour here, or the, the bottom of the hour, uh, you know, in the United States and, and elsewhere, too, there's been a lot of hand wringing over the, the state of democracy in Latin America, as they put it anyway. So as one example, the cover of the most recent issue of The Economist was kind of getting circulated on the Internet. Uh, it was titled Democracy in Decay with a picture of Central and South America uh, beneath it. And, you know, the subtext is uh, because there are all these left wing governments being elected. And I wonder what you make of uh, the Petro and, and Marquez victory in Colombia, but also these other victories, you know, in, in Peru, 
um, the return of the Moss in Bolivia, uh, the, the continued struggles in Venezuela. You know, it's looking like Lula will probably take Brazil in the next election. Um, the, the pink tide, I guess, is rising again. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, you've been talking a lot about hope um, and also about, about challenges. Uh, what do you think, kind of considering that, that region and uh, its sort of signals maybe in the, our, our kind of shifting geopolitical order? How do we kind of reflect and, and make sense of that as uh, Christians on the left? I'd like to preface my answer to your question by saying I believe that Petro's election in Colombia is, is actually the first sign that we've had in many, many years in Latin America that democracy in that region is still alive. Why? Because for a very long time, not, not just because of the elections that have happened recently in the region, like the Duque election in Colombia or the Bolsonaro election in Brazil or uh, the election in Ecuador too, so all of that, but because Colombia was the one place that was really hard to crack in terms of getting the political elite, which was connected to those families that own the country, which is connected to the families that own the church, which is connected to the families that were they were at some point given the land by the Spaniards. Um, it was the one place where that cycle had not been broken. Violence was always able to silence Decent voices was always able to kill enough people to maintain only one side of the democratic um, expression of the country alive. So, if this is possible, it means that something something is right, and democracy is, is still alive there, and we can fight for it. Um, but um, going back to your your question about the influence and the perception and the optics around all of these in Latin America. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to a story. I'm sorry for dealing, like, dealing with these questions, which are more kind of abstract with stories, but that's the way I approach things. Um, the, the political party that um, saw the transformation of, of Petro into the politician that he is now, um, is called Polo Democratico, the Democratic Pole. And that, that party um, was also the, the home base of many of the local politicians from the left that became mayors of Bogota, governors of different provinces, senators, um, house representatives, etc. At the same time, the party that uh, was led by many years by Alvaro Uribe was called the Centro Democratico, the Democratic Center. It's not a coincidence that democratic is integral to both names. Why? Because it is two understandings of democracy that are competing within the country. One, the one that says that democracy is only achievable after the um, economic um, issues and the uh, are resolved and the uh, the war is uh, won and all of that, 
and the other one that says that in order to solve all of our issues, we need to first allow for a truly democratic process. Um, those visions of democracy are the visions of democracy we've inherited from the world. The vision of democracy that the Centro Democratico pauses is almost verbatim the vision of democracy that we were told by Clinton and Bush. And the version of democracy that the Polo Democratico pauses is the version of democracy that for the most part we've inherited from people coming back from the European Union. So they are, they are important. They are not local. Um, they competed for a long time, and I believe that for the first time, local movements are developing their own understandings, under, understandings of democracy. So what democracy should look like in your community that is completely fractured, that has been fighting within itself for so long, that is in decline, that has no anymore like young people because they all died in war, because all of that. So that is the kind of democracy that um, really I see in the face of someone like, like Francia Marquez. She, her understanding of how um, political dialogue should happen at the local level is her own understanding of democracy. So it might not be the kind of democracy that, that we um, inherited from the states or the understanding of democracy we inherited from the states, it might not be the understanding of democracy that we get from the continental tradition and Europe and everything that the, the first kind of left movement brought to us, but it is nonetheless democracy. So is it dying? No. Is it, is it uh, in life support? Yes. But it's in life support after being in a full coma. So we are actually waking up as opposed to dying. You're mentioning how hope is such an, an important underlying uh, issue uh, or idea in in Colombia, and I guess maybe it shines through with that with that way of thinking too, right? That there's this uh, re recounting of of democracy, or it's coming back, and and the the hope is that this is sort of the start of something new and interesting. Yeah, it is. It it is really a hopeful move, and it's, it's again is connected to the understanding of hope that comes from the margins too. That that hope against all odds. Uh, that is, again, burden and gift, um, but it is, it is usually embodied and sustained and um, it, like informed by the life of the, the small communities that, that are the, at the margin of the country. So the margins of the country. So it would be indigenous groups, Afro-Colombian groups, young groups of students um, who are informing that new way of looking at the democratic process in Colombia. Uh, well, Hector, it's been really great to have you back on the show, talking to us uh, a little bit about this situation and talking us through it. It's been a long time since we had a guest on the podcast, and I feel really lucky that we were able to uh, bring you back to, to uh, encourage us to talk to some other folks. And we look forward to talking to you more. I'm sure this won't be the last time that we want to check in with you and hear about this process and, and how it's going. So thanks for joining us, spending uh, so much time uh, researching and thinking with us, and uh, we, we'll maybe seize on those uh, expressions of hope for, for a new democracy in the region. Thank you both for inviting me and for letting me uh, think through all of these uh, with you, because I haven't had the chance to really think 
through this all, I've been just so um, happy that there is a moment of hope for, for us Colombians and I, I think for the world. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, again, you can find us on patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us on the internet. We've got a Twitter account. That's probably the only thing we check anymore these days, if we're being honest. Uh, our music is by Maria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.